I think the grind builds a lot of character. It's definitely a necessary component to get anything you know, worthwhile off the ground. Um, I don't regret it for a second. You know, my mentality was always, you know, to pitch in. I had the skill set. I mean, I started the, my company was a technical company. Um, I and we started programming. So the very first product that was released was a, a result of you know my typing and my programming. And I maintained that skill set for many many years. Not for the entirety of the company. It got, it got to a point where the company's the technology outgrew my ability to keep up with it because I had so many other challenges to deal with. Um, but until that time. Until that happened, for the first, I would say, 10 to probably 15 years, I was down in the trenches with, with my team. And I enjoyed, you know, pitching in when an extra set of hands was needed, when there was, an, you know, extra, extra tasks to be performed on various projects. I, I really enjoyed, you know, getting down into the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flow Over Fear. I'm really excited you're here today because I have a good friend who I met a number of months ago um, in a program called Heroic Public Speaking. And uh, I learned we were we were kind of two birds of a feather because we, we have a lot of the same kind of adventurous spirit. And we've been through a lot of similar things. And man, his story is incredible. Uh, and his name is Stephen Pivnik. He is a sought-after keynote speaker, best-selling author, a business advisor and a serial entrepreneur specializing in information and technology market. He grew his last company, Binary Tree, to over 200 employees across 12 countries before a successful exit to a $4 billion competitor. And Stephen is an incredible story. His incredible story is one that is full of adventure, and we'll get into a lot of that today. And it began as an immigrant from Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union and ultimately led him to the finish line of the Ironman World Championship and beyond. His other adventures have included completing the Ultraman in Florida, multiple ultramarathons of distances up to 100 miles, and summiting some of the most challenging summits in the world. And when he's not on the keynote stage or climbing one of the seven summits, Stephen advises other founders and entrepreneurs looking for similar corporate growth or sale. And his new book, which I had the opportunity to read before it came out, is called Built to Finish. And it's available now. And it's really, really good. Stephen, welcome to the welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here, man. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I I'm blushing from that introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's funny when we hear our introductions, when we've done all of these things, it's almost like just a one of those things where just our world flashes before our eyes and we see all of the things we've experienced and and um and you know, how it started for you is really inspiring because, you know, you, you came from a background which was really challenging in and of itself. And I'd love to hear kind of your your story from childhood. I want to start there because coming sure. as an immigrant from Eastern Europe during a really, really tumultuous time and coming into the United States, I mean, that's not something a lot of people experience. And um, And I'd love to hear how that kind of shaped your future. Can you kind of get into that a little bit? 
Sure. I'm not sure if I actually have the actual memories of the events of, of the actual immigration because it happened when I was, um, it started when I was two years old and it ended when mm-hmm. I was three, when we finally ended up in Brooklyn, New York from the former Soviet Union, um, now um, Odessa, Ukraine, which is, it, it is now. Um, so I'm not sure if I actually remember these events or if I actually form these memories based on the numerous stories that I've heard over the years. But yeah, it was some pretty tumultuous times. Um, my, my family's Jewish. Um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the former Soviet mm-hmm. Union. Um, we weren't allowed to, we weren't um, specifically very religious Jews, but we like to practice, you know, the, the, the major holidays and a lot of the customs. Uh, the story that broke the camel's back was a woman walked into a store and broke a glass bottle over my grandmother's head and called Jeez. her a rotten Jew as she, you know, ran out of the store. So my grandfather um, basically said that that's it, enough's enough. Um, we're going to go look for a better life and started the process of getting us out of there. Um, the journey was long. Uh, we went from Odessa to Austria, um, from Austria to Rome, Italy. And we lived in Rome, Italy for over just about six months because Rome at the time was the center for all, for all immigration into the, into the United States. So mm-hmm. we waited for our official papers to get uh, finalized in Rome. And then when we finally got the go ahead, um, we were actually, we were actually given several options. We could have gone to Canada. We could have gone to Australia. We could have gone to Israel or several stop spots in the U.S. And my family chose Brooklyn, New York and, mm-hmm. um, got on a plane. Um, went to JFK and got um, sent over to, uh, to an apartment in Brighton Beach. So wow. it was a pretty long journey and life began in earnest for us um, in, the, in the U.S. So what, 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 what led to the decision to come to New York instead of Canada or Australia or any, any, any of those other places? Was there, was there something I, that drove I think you there? That the biggest reason was my parents, my parents and my grandparents knew one or two other couples that were already in New York and we didn't really mm-hmm. have any other acquaintances in the other locations. So um, people were saying, Hey, you know, we're in New York. Um, the water's fine. Come on in. So nice. we went to New York. Otherwise I, awesome. I would have been talking with a funny accent right now. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I know it's, it's fascinating. And, and have you, uh, so growing up in New York in that time, kind of coming over with, uh, uh, you know, the shirts on your back and everything like that, how, how was that growing up? What did, what did you learn from that experience of, of growing up in New York and, and kind of being that first generation, uh, yeah, in the I, United I, States? I think that's where I got my work ethic from because we didn't have a penny to our name. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there, there were plenty of jobs. My father was a mechanic. He was an air conditioning mechanic and then slowly but surely migrated his skill set into automobile mechanics. My grandfather was a bus, bus um, driver for a Jewish school in Borough Park, Brooklyn. And I, I saw them, you know, get up to work every single day and come home late. So I mm-hmm. firmly believe, you know, that's where I got my work ethic from. There's no there was no such thing as sick days. It was, you know, work from sunrise to sunset, you know, to put food on the table and to provide for the family which they did really, really well. I don't remember hurting. We weren't rich at all, um, but yeah. I don't remember hurting for, for anything. We always had food on the table. We always had shelter. We always had clothes. Um, a lot of it was from, you know, from charity, from, from various Jewish organizations. But a lot mm-hmm. of it was from the, you know, the, the blood, sweat and tears that my father and grandfather and then later grandmother and mother, you know, put in to, you know, just to, to, to make ends meet. Yeah. And how, how um, I... How with your grandparents, I know you'd mentioned in the book that they really shaped a lot of your framework, obviously your work ethic. Did, is there anything else you feel that, that you 
that you got from them, from, from that experience that, that, uh, that helped you become who you are today or any fond memories that you have of, of your grandparents in, in particular? Sure. I mean, my, my parents were very, very social. They made a lot of friends mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, friends immigrated after us and then they made new friends, um, in Brooklyn. So they were super social. They went out every single weekend, which is where I get a lot of my, <laughs> I guess, social activities and social right. hobbies from as well. And, but the best part about that was they dropped my sister off at my grandparents, grandparents apartment every single Friday after work. And we weren't picked up until Sunday. So we got to spend from Friday night to Sunday night with my grandparents. And, you know, being, t- you know, typical grandparents, they, they spoil their grandchildren. They yeah. lived right on the, be- or they lived right on the beach, um, in Brooklyn. So in the summers, we went to the beach every Saturday and every Sunday. In the winters, um, they, they took us, they uh, took us to a myriad of different activities from, you know, roller skating to ice skating, um, to, to shopping. Um, different things. And they were, they were the, like the matriarch and patriarch of the family. Um, they loved each other and it, it showed in droves. So I, we, we definitely saw what, what love was like. Um, and they, they, they cared for their kids and their grandkids tremendously. And we, we saw what it, what's, what it's like to lead a, a family, not just a household, but to lead a family. And mm-hmm. they just set an incredible example for, for me and my sister on how to do so when it was time for us to build our own families. I love that. And, and you'd mentioned kind of the work ethic that you, that you got and, and that, and it shows, I mean, throughout the book, uh, you know, built to finish that you, uh, that you're just releasing that, that you talk a lot about the work ethic, the grit, the drive, the grind, as you call it. And, sure. uh, and how that was, how that was kind of imprinted in you early on. And, and, you know, while I, th- I think it was when you were in high school, there were periods of times where you saw other people, you know, a- other kids enjoying the activities that they do, that they did in high school and all that while you were working, you know, the job and, and, and trying to make money to support yourself and the family. How uh, is, is, do you have any, do you still feel the same way about that work ethic? Has it evolved? Or, or, or do you regret any of that kind of like just working really hard and grinding or, um, how, how would you reflect on that grind today in terms of no, I, what, I, what I think the grind builds a lot of character. It's definitely yeah. a necessary component to get anything you know, worthwhile off the ground. Um, I don't regret it for a second. You know, my mentality was always, you know, to pitch in. I had the skill set. I mean, I started the com- my company was a technical company. Um, mm-hmm. I st- and we started programming. So the very first product that was released was a, a result of, you know, my typing and my programming. And I maintained that skill set for many, many years, not for the entirety of the company. It got, it got to a point where the company's the technology outgrew my ability to keep up with it because I had yeah. so many <laughs> other challenges to deal with. Um, but until that time, until that happened for the first, I would say 10 to probably 15 years, I was down in the trenches with, with my team and I enjoyed, you know, pitching in when the extra set of hands was needed, when there was an, you know, extra, extra, um, you know, um, tasks to be performed on various projects. I, I really enjoyed, you know, getting down into the trenches. And I think that differentiates, you know, some leaders from others. And that's not to say that there's also a lot to be said for delegation, right? Right, right mm-hmm. now in my advisory role, I highly, highly suggest that that CEOs and founders delegate more because like myself, 
Um, founders sometimes having sometimes have a hard time letting go, and you got to find. And there's there's no right time. There's no perfect right time, right? It all depends right. on the situation, depends on the company, depends on the growth rate. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but there does come a time when delegation becomes much more important than rolling up your sleeves and and pitching in, and you know helping entrepreneurs and founders, you know, find that right time is something that I really enjoy doing. Yeah. And that, that's something I honestly struggle with too, is, you know, running, running a company is, is that balance between digging in and showing the team that you're engaged and wanting to be involved, but also knowing, knowing your role, knowing your place, knowing that your responsibility is to, is to kind of look at the, at the high level stuff and, and, and really uh, delegate there is, Sure. Are, are there any tools or tips that you have from your experience on how to balance that, on how to balance the, the engagement versus the, you know, versus the, the high level, you know, delegation? I, I think it becomes a lot easier once you have a lot of confidence and trust in the people that are around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the times when you find a founder or an owner, you know, digging in much deeper than they really should is because they really don't trust that they can hand this off to somebody and for it to be done as well as they would do it. You know, the old yeah. adage, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. If, <laughs> if that's true in your company, then that's probably a symptom of you not having the right people around you. So mm-hmm. a CEO or founder, you know, should be responsible mainly for strategy and a high level vision. And the actual execution of, of that um, should be delegated to others. And if you can't, then it's, again, it's a sign that the, the team around you needs to be looked at. Yeah. Was that, was that a, a, a role that you enjoyed? The idea, the, the running of the business and, and the building of it? Because you, you've since obviously sold it and, and you know, exited and, and doing all of this other stuff, writing a book and all these things. Is that something you, you're going to miss? Is it something you're going to want to go back to? Uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? It's interesting. Um, when it, when the exit first occurred and I sold the company, I was incredibly relieved. I, I was obviously very happy about the outcome, yeah. and I was super proud of my team um, for accomplishing you know what we accomplished in the marketplace. And it, mm-hmm. you know what? It's very very similar to finishing a race. The second you finish, when the second you cross the finish line after a long endurance event, especially with some of the crazy things that I do, <laughs> I mean, all you want to do is you know curl up, <laughs> go to sleep, and you know wake up four days later. Right. But you know what? Um, when the dust settles and then you know cramps subside and the, the muscles start working again, you start looking around saying, "Okay." And this happens every single time. But before the end of a race, I'm like, "I will not. I don't need to do this anymore." I'm fifty. What am I? Fifty-four years old now. Enough <laughs> of this torture to your body. And then it never, never fails. Three days later, I'm, I'm looking for the next challenge and I'm signing up for something else. But to answer your question regarding the business, I loved growing the company. It was fantastic to see year after year after year of consecutive growth um, for the business. And we, when we were done, it again, it was super rewarding. It was for me personally, because I wasn't part of the sale, it became eerily quiet. You know, I'm going from mm-hmm. running a million miles an hour in this business to having no access to my email, my calendar, contacts, the phone stops ringing. It was eerie, it was eerie um, to say the least. Yeah. Um, it's been just over three years now. Um, I, I think the itch is starting 
a, a little bit. Right now, we're just living vicariously through other founders and helping them from an advisory perspective. And I just, I love going to meetings. I love the energy. I love their channel. Mm-hmm. It's almost like being a grandparent and getting kids here for the weekend and having to <laughs> deal with them. But the best part about it is you, you get to give them back and you get to grow right. on with your life. So not that I want my you know clients to have problems, but every every growing business has challenges. I love you know yeah. digging in, and I, I I I get the energy you know from that. But um, I'm slowly you know but surely you know starting to miss having that you know that same type of energy from from my own uh, creation. So I, I think I said this in the book. You know, never say never. But right now mm-hmm. there's no plans for new co. But never say never. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I love that philosophy of never saying never, um, because you never know what's around the bend. And, and you know, if you're going to if you're going to close the door to other opportunities that might exist for you in the future that you might really enjoy, you know, then right. then it's just, you know, that that that's that's never good. And I think and yeah, so I'm always curious about that, because I've I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, CEOs who who do get that itch, who, who kind of go back to it, who, who, you know, um, who, who start multiple businesses, that entrepreneurial bug just doesn't, doesn't leave. Um, what, what was the original, uh, you know, impetus for your, for your, for that entrepreneurial itch that you had? Cause you were working, you know, you're, you're, uh, from the book, you were working in, in, you know, uh, um, in other companies, you know, for other companies, what, what, led you to make that switch to, you know, going into starting your own business and, and wanting to pursue that. And then kind of tell us about those first few years, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, I, I started my career first as a programmer and I was there, I was working for a, a publishing company called um, Reader's Digest at the time. And that, that was, you know, great experience. I, I was super young. Um, I was, I was learning a lot, you know, work, working in a, in a big professional environment. Um, then I, I got a job at another, um, Big, bigger, biggish, you know, company, the equivalent of a Macy's today. I think it was called Mercantile Stores. And mm-hmm. after I outgrew that job, I, I got a job as a consultant. Um, work and the consulting company placed me at a client, at their client, I believe at the time was American Express. And I started mm-hmm. learning the, the financials behind this business. So I'm just speaking in numbers here. Let's say they were billing me out at $100 an hour and they were paying me, say, $80 an hour. So they were making a you know, $20 margin for every hour of my work, and, but they weren't adding any value whatsoever. And I just felt that that was, that was wrong. <laughs> Again, maybe <laughs> it, it was ignorance. I mean, every um, staffing agency definitely deserves to get paid because this is what they do. They had a need and they found, right. they, they sourced that need and they should get paid for it. So, but being the naive person that I was, maybe it's a good thing. I'm like, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. If, yeah. um, so I said, if, if I, I want to do this, I want to do something very, very similar. Um, I want to make margin on a, on my, I want to make my full billing. I want to take home my full billing rate is what I said mm-hmm. to myself. And when I expand these projects into larger projects and I bring on additional staff, um, to fill the requirements, I, Yes, I'm going to make margin on that step, but I'm going to add value from either from a project management um, perspective, either from a client, um, from a client services perspective. I'm going to provide you know training to the employees. I'm going to provide you know benefits to the employees. So I'm going to be treated. I'm going to treat my employees differently than I was treated by this um, this this consulting company that placed me on this project. So that was kind of the division. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm doing on a larger scale, but a lot differently and add more value on both ends of the equation. 
So the company was started as a consulting organization, just doing custom application development work uh, for large <clears> customers <throat> in the Wall Street area in New York. So that, that, that was the origins of, of the business. And slowly but surely, uh, we grew to about 50, maybe 30 to 40 employees, again, <laughs> doing what I just described, custom application development work for unique requirements. And then a, a bank, um, JP Morgan, approached us and said, hey, you guys are building a reputation for good custom development work. We need this, this custom tool developed to help us convert email data because we're moving from one email system to another. And we want to make sure that all of the, all of the inbox, the calendar, the contacts, all the folders are synchronized when we move over to this new system. So <laughs> I looked up over at my partners and said, that's the, the most boring project I've ever heard of <laughs> at the time. Um, but we were consultants, right? We would trade time for dollars and we didn't like to say no to work. At the time, yeah. I had a pretty long commute. I was living in New Jersey with my family and the business was in Manhattan. And I had an hour and a half, you know, each way train ride and laptops were a thing. So I said, you yeah. know what? We don't have any of it, anybody available for this project. I'll just do it myself over my commute over the next couple of months. So over the next couple of months, wrote the code, delivered to the customer. The customer was happy. And that tiny little program to convert email data mushroomed into an entire suite of products that really helped facilitate the, the age of enterprise email systems in the, in, in the, in the nineties. So wow. that was, um, the, the beginnings of the company. That's incredible. Yeah. It, it's, and I heard a few things there that, that are really important. Uh, I, I think to, to touch on for the audience who may be thinking of making that leap to entrepreneurship. Uh, and I know that there's, there's many out there, but that first was like, where can I add value? You know, that there, there right. may be areas out there where there's not value being added that you can add a significant value. And it sounds like that was almost the, the, the platform on which you were able to make that growth in your company it was just like, you found a way to add value. And then the other part was you built reputation. You, you built a reputation for that service, for the, uh, uh, for the experience that the customer needed. That was, that's, that's really powerful. Do you, do you feel like those are the primary elements or were there other things that, that led to the, that growth that you saw in, in those early days? No, it, it definitely did. Um, add, adding value and exceeding customer expectations is a huge. <laughs> and I think, you know, that should be a foundation for anybody that has a company or is thinking of starting a company. There's a yeah. great book that I read, um, I think called Lovability. Um, it talks mm. about making sure that the customer loves every single touch point with, with your company. From the time they first see your website to the time they contact the salesperson to the time, let's say, they get a product demonstration, if it's a technology, or maybe they get an evaluation copy if you're in the, in the manufacturing space, to calling you know customer support, to calling the, the renewal representative for their subscription renewal. Every You need to make sure that there's lovability from the customer's mm -hmm. perspective to your customer, and then you're gonna you're gonna build customers for life if you can achieve that. That's incredible. I love ability book. I have to look that up because that that sounds like something that should be a read for anybody that's getting into business, finding out how that how that is. So, uh, yeah. thank you for that recommendation. Hey everyone, I interrupt this program to introduce you to a powerful tool that will help you gain clarity on your vision and accelerate your growth and achievement. If you're listening to this show, it is likely that you have an exciting vision for your life. 
But the problem is, is that we often get caught up in the day-to-day. We get distracted. We face uncertainty, overwhelm, and self-doubt. And as a result, the gap between where you are and where you want to be seems insurmountable. And that's why I created a framework for how you can turn your vision into strategic, disciplined action that will accelerate your results in the next 90 days. I call it the Vision Reflection Retreat. It is a two-day solo excursion designed to reignite passion and adventure into your busy life and realign your focus toward your why. This is the very same framework that I use every 90 days to reflect on my own life and my vision and set my goals for the next quarter. And it has been a game changer. And the good news is is that I'm giving away this Vision Reflection Retreat Guidebook for free when you sign up for my newsletter. Simply go to flowoverfear.com slash retreat and download your free guide and enjoy the journey. So later on, you know, obviously fast forward ahead, you built you built a business now, now you're on the path to selling it. How did that come to be? And what what led to the decision to you to sell it and not just keep running it and building it? Sure. So one of the many mistakes that I've made in building this business was we were kind of a victim of our own success. Um, mm-hmm. We created um, software and professional services that were around specific projects. Um, even though we did a lot of other things, and I don't want I don't want to take away value from other products. The core of our business was helping companies convert email data. So you mm-hmm. go from one platform to another. You go from an on-premise email server to the cloud, you know, which is you know, big, continues to be a big thing. And it's amazing that still many companies don't have their email in the cloud yet. Right. Um, so, but it, it was called it was project-based software. And uh, in, in the software world, that's really rare because most software you purchase, you subscribe to, and you use mm-hmm. um, all the time. Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, Google, G, um, um, Google Mail, any other product you use continuously. Our, pro- our products and services were project-based. Yeah. So we started every January with zero revenue. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we, by the time we ended the company, the time I sold the company, we were at over $40 million of revenue. But think of ha- having to start at zero every single yeah. year and then to sell yeah. more than you sold last year and do that right. over and over and over. Um, talk about the grind. <laughs> and we, we got it done. We miraculously grew for 26 years in a row. And yeah. it's not that I lost any confidence in our ability to continue to grow, but it just got to such a scale where it became a little bit scary. I, I, yeah. know, I know for a fact that we could have continued to grow it, but something just you know clicked in my mind. And you know, I, I, I said, it's, it's, it's time. Yeah, so, so the idea of not having that recurring revenue model was, was a little bit scary. That was one of the, the impetuses yeah, it, to that. It, it, was, yeah. it was really scary. And again, I had, yeah. had all the confidence in the world that we would continue to grow. And we did because mm-hmm. I made, by the time I, from the time I made the decision to sell to the time we sold was um, just over three years. And yeah. guess what? During those three years, we, <laughs> we grew and we grew and we grew. And I think, right. and I know we would have continued to grow. But um, that, that was just one of the, the many things that contributed to me just saying, you know what? It's time to realize the value for me and my family to realize um, the value from this, um, all, all this work that I and my team did. And the sacrifices yeah. that were, you know, put forward for all these years. Yeah. So that that's, uh, and then as you look to sell it, were, were you actively approaching competitors to buy or did they approach you? How, how did that look? Were, were you 
attractive enough that they were going to be looking for you or, or were you seeking them out? Yeah, um, we, we had some unsolicited offers um, in the past, mm-hmm. which weren't attractive enough. Um, when it was time to finally uh, officially, when I made the decision to officially sell, we ended up um, interviewing with several investment bankers. Uh, we ended up picking one out of Pennsylvania, which I, I highly um, pr- recommend. Um, mm-hmm. Fairmount Partners, they, they were phenomenal with us. And they actually started a formal process, of a formal go-to-market process, where they, 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 they come up with all the necessary literature um, to bring a company to market, and they propose uh, your company to potential buyers. And we ended up um, selling. So that, that process, we executed that process and ended up selling to our biggest competitor. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on that. I know that that, that's just a huge, huge success to build a company from scratch and build it to a point where you could sell to a multi-billion dollar company. It's just, just incredible. An example of how like that positive work ethic can, can drive forward to that kind of thing. I hope everybody can learn a lesson from that. And it sounds like that lesson of the grind and, you know, even extended beyond uh, obviously your career, but into endurance sport, you know, and starting to get into Ironman triathlons and, and, and ultra endurance sports. And I mean, yeah, your, your resume is incredible on that, on that front. <laughs> so but I want to, I want to get into that because that, that's exciting to me too. How did you get started with, uh, with endurance sport? Uh, you start your book off with, you know, with talking about the triathlon stuff. Can you kind of share about how you caught the bug and, and developed how you sure. did? Yeah, so um, as I was approaching, I, I call I call it my midlife crisis. I, I don't know, forty is midlife, but I hope not. <laughs> but <laughs> as I was approaching forty, I was looking at my parents and my grandparents who had it all. Yeah. Um, they had cancer, high blood pressure, <laughs> diabetes, strokes. You name it. My parents, God bless them, and grandparents um, had it. And I said, hey, mm-hmm. I've, I've got some really, really bad genes um, in my body, and I need to do something about it. So it was weighing heavily on me. Around yeah. the same exact time, I was at a dinner party. Um, well, my, one of my executives at work through a small dinner party, and one of them told me that one of our employees, her name was Rita, just ran a triathlon. And I, I was just blown away by the fact that a, a mere mortal, one of my employees, ran a triathlon. This was my ignorance about the sport. I thought triathlons was an Olympic event, and you have to be like this chiseled athlete to participate in a triathlon. How does a mere mortal <laughs> do this? <laughs> so first thing Monday morning, I bring up Rita, get her into my office. I hope, hopefully, I didn't scare her too much. Like, why does Stephen want to see me? <laughs> right. I'm like, tell me about the triathlon, and how do you sign up for one? So there's a website called beginnertriathlete.com. You can, mm-hmm. you can sort by, by location and by length of race. You could pick a local race and anybody, meaning anybody, there's no qualification process, can sign up for any race. And then you train and you show up and you race. And when you finish, you're a triathlete. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. And when I crossed that finish line, I'm like, oh, my God, I love this sport. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And beginner triathlete, I remember that website well when when I was starting out, too. And it was like it was almost the antithesis of slow twitch, which was like the scary version of like this is the, you know, yes. that, uh, yeah, I I kind of learned that same thing when I got started was that, you know, I thought the same thing. And, and I don't know if it's like the best kept secret or the worst kept secret that triathlon is really for everybody. Anybody can do it. And that's, that's exciting to hear. So how did, so you caught the bug, you finished that first triathlon. What, uh, uh, wh- what was the time frame of the jump from that triathlon to finishing your first Ironman? 
So th- th- that evening, I finished a triathlon. I emailed Rita and I said, thank you very much for all this information. Thank you for the motivation mm-hmm. and inspiration for getting me into the sport. She replies, you're very welcome. I'm sure we'll see you in Kona one day. So again, total ignorance towards the sport. I'm like, what does Kona have to do with triathlon? So I Google <laughs> Kona triathlon. And then I spend the next three hours watching Iron Man videos. I'm like, yeah. oh, and I'm I sp- specifically Iron Man World Championship videos from Kona, Hawaii. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, this is the most incredible event in the world. I don't know how, but some way, somehow, I'm going to get to Kona. So mm-hmm. right there, the bug was planted. You know, Stephen, the businessman, was going to become, you know, Stephen, the Iron Man. And not just Iron Man, I'm going to get to Kona some some way, somehow. So I, I approached it. Some some people just, like, find out about Iron Man, and they go, they go after it, and they get it done. I think that's a very dangerous approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a much more methodical and longer approach. So I said, if I'm going to do Iron Man, let me first see if I can do a, a an Olympic distance triathlon. So I did that. Yeah. Then I said, let me see if I can run a half marathon. I did that. Then I said, let me try a half Ironman distance triathlon. I did that. Then I did the New York City Marathon to make sure that my body was capable of running 26 miles. So after I finished that uh, and lived through it, then I put everything <laughs> together and started training for Ironman Lake Placid in um, 2011. And that, that was my first um, Ironman finish. And then, so that, that's, so 2011 is when the, the first Ironman occurred. And then I, so I still had this vision of getting to the world championship somehow, some way. Yeah. And there's two ways. You're either really fast and you qualify. So at every single Ironman event, and the corporation has grown so big that there's, there's three or four Ironman races every weekend um, mm-hmm. these days. So either you're really fast at the top of your age group and you qualify and you get to go race with the best of the world. Or Ironman has something called the Legacy Lottery Program. I call it their frequent flyer program. As long as you complete 12 full distance events within a certain time frame, you're able to get, um, you, you enter this lottery. And if you're selected, you get to go and race with the 2,500 of the best athletes in the world. So there's 2,500 yeah. folks that qualified including the pros that make money at this and mm-hmm. 10, 100, um, 10, 100 lucky lottery winners. And that's the way I fun- eventually um, made it to Kona. So it was from 2011, my first finish to 2022 to crossing the finish line in Kona. That's amazing. And, and by the way, let, let just, just think about the, to the listeners out there who are thinking about doing Ironman or thinking about the, the, uh, the challenge that exists in there. You know, think about not just having, not just doing one of them, but 12 of them to get to that goal. I mean, talk about the grind. That is an incredible achievement. And, you know, coming from that, I, I, I think there's a big lesson in what you just said, Stephen, in that first, in that first part, which, which is you didn't just jump in like so many people do when they have this big dream that is way above them. Either I, I feel like, you know, when it comes to fear, either we, Either we look at the size of the goal and we just say, no way, I could never do that. We turn our backs on it and we leave and we just don't do it. Or we jump in too hard and we just go for like the, the thing and then we burn ourselves out and we don't make it. But exactly. that path of, of taking like those incremental growth, that incremental growth is, is such a great antidote to self-doubt or, uh, or, or lack of feeling like we could achieve it or burning out or that overwhelm. 
just taking it one step at a time with the goal that you can see right in front of you, finishing that first triathlon, finishing that first Olympic distance, then the 70.3, and then finally the Ironman. And, um, and by the way, Lake Placid was not, not the easiest Ironman to start with for sure. No, I mean, <laughs> I've heard that that's pretty brutal. It's because it was the closest and it didn't yeah. require a lot of travel other than a four hour car, car ride. And, yeah. but boy, is that a challenging course? Um, if yeah. I was, I would not recommend that as a first course. There's several other much flatter courses out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you and I, you and I started kind of on the, on the harder courses. I did, I did Cabo as my first, uh, the, the, uh, when they had the full one. one. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty brutal, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, and so consecutively did, did it get easier? Did it get more fun? Did you kind of burn out on it over those 10 years or did you just keep falling deeper and deeper in love with it? No, I, um, I definitely got into the flow. I yeah. loved it. And another, another advantage of taking the, the route that I, I took and continue to take is, um, the lack of injuries. Um, a lot of mm -hmm. people that get it, get into the sport a little bit too aggressively, um, are definitely much more injury prone. Um, one of the chapters in my book and my motto for racing is not fast, not last. I think that yeah. I attribute the fact that I haven't had any injuries, uh, other than the, you know, cramps and, you know, um, sore muscles to, is the fact that I, I'm really, I push myself to finish, but I don't really, really over exert myself for a specific finishing time because I really, I love the journey. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, the destination is great. I'm there for the destination. I want to cross that finish line. Um, yeah. but I love the journey just as much. So to answer your question, I just, I just love the flow. I, I love being, you know, part of the starting line. I, I love all the excitement and fanfare of that gun going off, you know, 2000 athletes hitting the water and then, you know, 17 hours later or however long it takes, well, actually 17 is the cutoff. So hopefully less yeah. than 17 hours later, crossing <laughs> that finish line, hating yourself or putting yourself through all this pain and agony. And then, you know, two days later, Signing up for the next one, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, what, when when you started out, what was every, everyone has their their biggest? Uh, I, I guess the the one sport out of the three that's like their their biggest, like the most challenging, the hardest one, yes. the one that people say they can't do. What, what was that for you? Uh, for me, it was swimming. I mean, yeah. I was never afraid of the water, um, but sure, I mean, because I grew up in Brighton Beach, I mean, I was went, went swimming um, very very often. And, uh, but I just, I did not have any form. I didn't have mm -hmm. any, um, in endurance. I did not know how I was. So my, the first triathlon was 800 meters. That's 32 laps in the pool. I mm -hmm. get into the pool. I swim to the other end and I come back and I'm winded. I literally could not continue. I'm just yeah. exhausted. I'm like, how am I going to do this 32 times? So it's just persistence and you eventually you find a rhythm, you watch a couple of YouTube videos, um, take a couple of lessons. Um, if you can, there's, there's so much information out there and you learn yeah. the proper stroke. You learn how to place your head in the water. You learn how to come up for air. And then you just do that again, stroke, <laughs> breathe, push, glide, <laughs> stroke, push, glide. And then you, you eventually learn it. But that, that, that was the hardest part. And it, it mm -hmm. continues to be on the hardest part because I'm just, I'm not a fast swimmer, I, but I built up enough endurance that it'll get me through the 2.4 mile swim uh, of an Ironman. I occasionally, I still get panic attacks because sometimes I'm just so anxious, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. to get out there and not be left back behind the, at the back of the pack. I go faster than I should. I start hyperventilating. I need to stop at a buoy, hold on, catch my breath. I continue to make some rookie mistakes. Fortunately, they're mm -hmm. decreasing, but they, they do rear their ugly head occasionally. So long answer, 
swim is, is, is my weakest and I'm continuously working on it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was mine too. And, uh, and still is that you're right. It never kind of goes away. You just, it's, it's, it's so technique intensive and so, so difficult. Yeah. Um, so tell, tell us about Kona because you, you got there on the legacy after 12, after finishing 12 races, you got into the lottery. What, what was Kona like? How, how was it for you? You know what? It was everything I ever envisioned it would be. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of envisioning things and envisioning the finish line and envisioning the journey. Um, I, I didn't manifest this. Obviously, I, I made this happen because I put through all the grit grind. <laughs> I, right. I, I got there. But in my mind, I was there a hundred times already. I've watched mm-hmm. every video available on YouTube about Kona. I watch every single world champ because the, the world championship is televised every year on NBC. I've watched ever since I learned about it. I've watched it every single year. I've, 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 I've repeatedly watched the same exact event just to see what these a- athletes are doing. So in my mind, I was there a couple of hundred times. So when I got there, it, it was just surreal from, from the moment we landed, you know, driving down that highway, the Queen K highway, which is where the bike course um, is and like to make, making a ride to Alihi Drive, which is where our hotel is. And Alihi Drive is the, the famous, you know, finishing line um, for, mm-hmm. for the run. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking around. I swear it, it was literally like walking through my old neighborhood in Brooklyn, which obviously I recognize every single street. And I know every single nook and cranny. I felt yeah. like I knew every single nook and cranny of this course and of this town because in my mind, um, the mind is incapable of the, of telling the difference between something f- actually happening and a really, really good visualization of that event. Mm-hmm. So if you become really good at meditating, and, not, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about expert level meditation. I'm talking about maybe like, you know, 101, 102 level meditation. You can really start visualizing things. And that's a phenomenal tool for goal setting because once mm-hmm. your mind starts visualizing things, you're subconsciously programming yourself to start doing things towards towards that goal. So yeah, Kona, for any triathlete that's listening, and if you have Kona on, on your bucket list, keep grinding, keep working at it. It's, it's, it is so, so, so worth it. Yeah. I, I well, I a hundred percent agree. And, and there's something truly magical about that place, uh, about Kona. And I mean, I share a lot of the feelings that you do about just you know, going there and just feeling the energy, seeing the sights and, and, and recognizing them and just being a part of it. And I hope mm-hmm. that if, if anybody at Ironman is listening, they don't take that away from the <laughs> triathletes that are trying to get there because it is so, so, so magical. Um, you know, and, and I really like what you said there about the visualizing through meditating because visualization was, that was a big element for me too, of, of, in my triathlon journey was visualizing those finish lines. Um, can you talk a little bit about your visualization practice, what that looks like, how, how can people implement that in their own lives? Sure. I mean, uh, actually the visualization actually helped me a lot with my company sale as well. Um, Mm -hmm. when I started taking the the sale process seriously, I actually wrote a checkout to myself for a very large amount of money and I pasted it in front of my computer, right? So I I had two, two things hanging in front of my computer that I saw all day, every day, a check made out to myself and an Ironman world championship poster. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I thought about that all the time. I, 
I, I, basically, you um, you get into a meditative state, it, 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 and it's really not that hard. It sounds like some people that don't meditate think it's a complicated process. It really just involves being in a quiet place um, with the lights off, usually, um, your <laughs> eyes closed. You know, five to ten super super deep breaths will 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 get you into a zone. And again, I'm not a meditation expert. I'm not I'm not up to speed on all of the exact vocabulary and terminology. So I apologize mm-hmm. to all the, the uh, meditative gurus <laughs> out there. Um, but uh, you know, five or ten super super deep breaths with your eyes closed and literally just start imagining what it is um, you're, you're you're striving for. Whether it's the finish line of a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon the sale of your company, the completion of a project, uh, the launch of a new product, um, the graduate, uh, a graduation event, the list goes on and on and on. Just, you know, put yourself there and it's, uh, you'd be amazed at how your body starts, you know, programming itself to make the right decisions towards that goal. Man, that's so, that's so helpful. That's such great, great advice to, uh, to people out there because we can, Man, it's easy to get caught up in the day to day and uh, and just kind of lose sight of that where we want to go so often. So, do you is that a practice you still do daily uh, in terms of or or is it is there a frequency at which you do that? Oh, hundred percent. I don't yeah. I don't do it daily, but I do it at least a couple of times a week. Uh, I still have goals. Um, yeah, I I continue to set um, large goals, and it's work <laughs> it's worked to um, <laughs> to achieving the you know, sale of the company and the Ironman World Championship. So I'm hoping it it conti- I'm not hoping I know it will continue to work. I'm um, going forward. Yeah. So how um how is Ironman like entrepreneurship? I mean, this is really kind of the 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 framework of of your book, Built to Finish. Like you know how sure. how you know you have kind of this in, these endurance things, but. What are some of the, just like, if you could summarize that into three key, you know, uh, things that, that where Ironman is like, or, or endurance sport is like entrepreneurship, what would you, what would you say those are? Um, planning and preparation, you know, I, I put them into one, the, both mm-hmm. are incredible. Like, they're key to both. I mean, uh, entrepreneurship is an endurance sport. So um, if you want to be successful in a race or in your business, you know, planning and preparation every step of the way is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, execution, right? So you, you put the plan together for a reason. Don't wing it from there. Execute um, the plan. There's going to be pivots. There's going to be setbacks. You're going to have to take detours, but um, which is totally fine. You should use your plan for those as well and mm-hmm. just execute accordingly. And, and then um, a measurement. I can't stress enough from a business perspective how few entrepreneurs take measurements and KPIs um, yeah. at, um, um, religiously. Um, I, I didn't at first. And it really wasn't until I started racing and started really measuring you know, my, my, my swim speeds, my bicycle um, pace, my running pace and strokes and all that jazz. And I started measuring that maniacally to make sure I was going to get make my way, get to the finish. I started um, measuring things better at work and having my team measure things better at work. And we really started becoming a little bit more maniacal, actually a lot more maniacal about KPIs and reports and quarterly statements. So those are, I guess if I, if I had to only stick to three, those would be the the three things that I would say are, are synonymous to each other in course, both disciplines. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, the planning execution measurement, uh, and I know a lot of people, maybe do really well with the planning part, but maybe not so great at the execution part, maybe not so great at the measurement part. Um, and, and part of, part of this show, you know, is obviously we want to 
help people to get over fears and 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 to recognize where fear might be an obstacle in their life, but ultimately get into that flow or get into discipline mm-hmm. you know, and, and be a disciplined person. How, what are some of the things and tools that you use in addition to visualization or things that you've learned that, that help you get into that flow, that keep you going, that keep you disciplined on, on the path to being in that grind? I mean, I, I think account- accountability partners is huge in everything, mm-hmm. both on a, from a business perspective and from an endurance perspective. I always had an accountability partner, whether it be a coach that's um, helping me along the way or whether it's somebody that's doing it with me. It becomes you know, so much easier to get things done. I mean, everybody always says it's 10 times easier to go to the gym if you have a friend wor- I'm waiting for you. That is so true. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I work out all the time. If I have somebody waiting for me and I know whether I'd be a person or a group, that that workout is 10 times easier to start. Workouts are hard to start. Workouts aren't hard mm-hmm. to complete. They are hard to start. Um, when you have somebody waiting for you, you, you will start 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah. So an account- yeah. I, I've used accountability partners and coaches um, throughout and I, I continue to because it's just a great tool. I love that. I, I like recognize recognize where that that the the biggest obstacle to to moving forward is, and if it's the start, you know, if right. you can accountability partners help you to start. I love that. I love that. That's such good advice. Um, now, talking about uh, the book, I want to I want to transition into the book. What can you can you just talk a little bit about it? What it's about? We talked a little bit about you know it is your story and and how you're relating it entrepreneurship to the endurance sport. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that and how we can go about finding it. Sure. I just, I just got my first copy. So it's nice. Very, it's, it's there. For, it's it's in real life. <laughs> there it is. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. It's called built to finish. You know, when I, when I started putting it together, I, it, um, one of the many challenges of writing a book is coming up with a title. And mm-hmm. I started, you know, I, I know I knew that I wanted to compare and contrast entrepreneurship to endurance sports. And I also wanted to talk about a lot of the lessons learned and some tips and tricks and some pitfalls that, you know, I encountered along the way. And it just just kind of, you know, came to us that, you know, there's a finish line in the business world. The finish line is the exit, right? Whether it's uh, going public, selling to a strategic, getting a majority recap from a private equity firm, that's the finish line for an entrepreneur. And that it's just a, a new phase starts, but that's the finish line. And obviously, in racing, there's a finish line for the event, or there's a, the top of a mountain in mountain in the mountaineering world. So mm-hmm. I just felt like you know, built to finish was a great title. And again, like I mentioned, it just it talks about like you, you asked for three things that are similar, but it talks about many other things. There's planning, right. um, preparation, perseverance, execution, pivots, setbacks, stamina, um, perseverance. There's uh, there's so many um, similarities that um, entrepreneurship has to endurance sports that the book kind of just takes the reader on two journeys. And I, I try to talk about because they actually happen at the same time. They're only one year apart. My Ironman Kona finish line was exactly one year after I'm sorry, one year and one month after the sale of the company. So oh, the, wow. the timeline was you know getting finishing one Ironman after the next and preparing yeah. the company uh, for the sale what, what was happening together. So it, the, it really, the book really takes the reader on two journeys on culminating in the finish of both. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote a book that's addressing that. And, and from the perspective of someone who is, who is, who is used to the grind used to, you know, and, and has 
tremendous success in business and 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 tremendous success in in endurance sport because one of the things i mean i think that we can all realize one of the best kept secrets that that needs to get out there is that you know endurance sport can translate into a lot of areas in our life business into our relationships into our family if we let it if we do it in the right way and it's such a powerful lesson i i learned that lesson too and and i mean it changed my life it, and it clearly changed yours yeah. and i would suggest just anyone who's who's listening to this pick up that book learn how it can do that and especially if you are you know looking to achieve something greater in your life if you have a vision for something that is way bigger than where you're at now uh read about someone who achieved it and also did can can translate that into the endurance sport and your life is going to transform um so and you could do that just by reading reading a book and getting in touch with Stephen on that so uh um so Stephen. Is, where where can uh, you're you're speaking you're consulting now you've got a book that you that's going to take off and 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 blow the world up where can people find you and get in touch with you if if uh if they want to learn more um yeah thank thank you for um all those compliments the um the, yeah. the, um, the book's available on amazon um the book is also available where book where books are sold in barnes and noble and other other retailers um if you want to contact me easiest way to do so is via my website stephenpivnick.com mm-hmm. Um, my email address is there. My LinkedIn profile is there, whether it's an email directly to me um, via LinkedIn. I'm always happy to chat with other folks, you know, pursuing some sort of endurance path or an entrepreneurial journey. Excellent. Thank you so, so much, Stephen. And I'm so glad I got to know you. It's just it's 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 just such a it's just such a thrill to see how successful you become, where you're going. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you on a on a stage some somewhere sometime and really hearing that story because one of the things that's a little frustrating to me honestly is that we we took this six months cor- month course together and we were never in the same cohort so I could see you speak <laughs> so uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to that day when I could when I could see you uh, see you on stage speaking and sharing your story I'm excited about that no Sam, and, uh, same here I mean it was a it yeah. was a pleasure meeting you and I, I love the fact that we're on this next you know chapter. Um, together. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, to everyone else out there, if you got a lot from this show uh, and and you know of someone who may be experiencing some of the struggles or challenges or, or or is doing some soul searching on this front, share this episode with them so that they maybe they can get something from that. And, uh, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this. And Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Everybody look at, get uh, Stephen's new book, Built to Finish, and uh, check him out at stephenpignick.com. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do. And I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.